All right, we're going to start in Exodus 7, but it's been two weeks, so it's been a little while. And where we left off was Moses had given a bunch of reasons why he couldn't do all this work for God. God gave him one reason back, which is, you don't have to, I'll do it. You don't have to really do anything but take the step that I'm asking you to take. So God works with Moses on obedience and he works with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh does the opposite of Moses. He keeps hardening his heart each time. Moses keeps softening his heart each time and they kind of go different directions in contrast to one another. Um, God is of course the great I am and he's personal and he can be known and we're seeing this like we did not see it in Genesis, this kind of intimate relationship that he has. Um, so the last time on the Bible channel, I'm going to go back to Exodus 6:28 because we kind of left off with that little teaser at the very end. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So it kind of ended the chapter on that note. And we start Exodus 7 with verse 1 where the Lord, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. So it's interesting that he doesn't really even answer Moses's question. It's almost like God's given Moses all the answer he needs. So Moses just is kind of being whiny and God's just moving on. Um, so God's answer is, see, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be a prophet. Made you is the word Nathan. We saw that in Genesis with the creation accounts. Uh, it's the broadest primitive root of making something. So when he says, see, I have made you, it's God's ascribing his presence to that servant. Um, the future tent as it, though it's not yet done. Let me say that again. I have made you says in the past tense, but it's also future tense. It's already been done. You've already done this and I have done it and I am doing it and it has been done already. When I say primitive root, it means that there's no tense attached to it. So it's interesting when we see sentences in the Hebrew where they don't attach a tense. And it happens not the first time. We've done this with God a few times. God thinks in, term of, thinks in terms of primitive roots, not because he's a tree, but because he doesn't have a past, present, and a future. So it's when God speaks, we've seen this a couple times now where he speaks in this non-tense specific kind of language. And when he says, I've made you, he's using that kind of language there. Um, when he says, I've made you as a God to Pharaoh, he's not actually making Moses into a God, but a God to Pharaoh, which gets us into Egyptian religion, which we need to study tonight. And I'm super excited. I want to jump to the end when we start getting in all the Egyptian gods. Um, but we need to know a couple things about Egyptian religion. One, Egyptians accept, fully accept that the Pharaoh is the top God of their religion. So their Pharaoh, the God of Pharaoh, actually is in human form and does all the relationships with all the other gods on behalf of the people. So every morning when Pharaoh wakes up, his job is to talk to all of the gods of the Egyptians, to commune with them, and then deal with the, the, those gods so that the people don't get harassed. If it wasn't for Pharaoh, there would be all sorts of problems all over Egypt. The Nile would overflow or it would stop flowing. The animals would go crazy and attack. The crocodiles would eat all the people. Pharaoh holds all that back. So it's almost like a religion where Pharaoh is like the dam and all the rest of the pantheon of gods is ready to attack. But Pharaoh holds them back because he's the most powerful. Make sense? So when he says, I have made you as a god to Pharaoh, um, that's because Moses can do some things. And that's what's going to happen, even though God says he's already done it. Pharaoh then believes he's a god too. Not hard to do. Humans, if you tell them that they're awesome, they believe it. And Pyro goes to people's heads really quick. And Pharaoh would have been told this since he was a wee child. So he really does believe he's a god uh, and that he can do those things. So we're going to see that God's going to introduce himself to Pharaoh because remember Pharaoh said, who's this god? I don't know your god. Because he should know all of them. He's that guy, right? And if he says, I don't know Jehovah... Jehovah's going to do a grand entrance. He's going to introduce himself um, in that kind of way. And to make a wedding reference, it's like when the bride shows up and everyone knows who she is because she's properly been introduced. There's been an entourage that goes before her. It goes in a certain order. 
what's going to happen right now is like one giant introduction of God to Pharaoh. And at the end of it, Pharaoh's going to realize he's not God. And he doesn't control this God like he controls the other gods. So Pharaoh had priests that would speak for him. So Pharaoh didn't often directly address human beings ever, which is why it was so unique when Pharaoh talked to Joseph back in Genesis is because pharaohs use other use their magicians to talk to the people for them. Um, and it's kind of cool because Moses saying, I can't talk, and God giving him Aaron, now Moses, as a god to Pharaoh, is going to have Aaron speak for him. It actually fits in Egyptian religion, the way it's set up. So God's kind of using Moses' shortcomings as part of God's plan. And I love seeing that. It's kind of the grace of God. Verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of this land, out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Um, remember, we've already seen Pharaoh harden his own heart. In fact, there's going to be a number of times where Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The only time where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart is the very last one with the killing of the firstborns. Um, but again, God's speaking without time specificness here. He's already done this to Pharaoh. Um, even though as we see it chronologically, it'll be at the end. Um, so verse four, but Pharaoh will not heed you. Again, God's telling Moses everything that's going to happen all the way through the end so that I might lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So God's going to show how empty idolatry is. The world, Egypt, has totally embraced idolatry at this point. They live, eat, and breathe by it. Everything's done according to idols. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron did just so. Isn't that nice? They don't argue anymore. They're not talking about uncircumcised lips. None of that kind of stuff. They're just going to do what God told them to do. So God has coached Moses to the point where Moses is now a useful servant. So it's a good place to start a new chapter. So just as Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. That's like a mini yeah. mini genealogy um, that we poked right in there. Um, that last bit reads almost like this is God's beginning to the story. Remember, everything up to this point has been humans interacting with each other. So God's going to show up and now be part of this kind of thing. Um, which leads to the question... Well, and I think a key point before we get to the next verse, God could, if you think about it, God could just zap all the Egyptians right now. We wouldn't have to have the next five chapters. He could just go poof and all the Egyptians turn into frogs. And then the Egyptians, the Israelites could not only leave the country, they could just take the country. God could do that if God wanted to, but he doesn't, which makes you wonder what's the purpose. And there's three purposes that I can think of. You may be able to think of some more. One purpose is that he's going to get the Egypt, the Israelites. It's time for them to be their own nation. And he's going to get them out of Egypt and he's going to put them into their own land. Second reason. We're going to see detailed examples of the worlds and the reaction to how God's people deal with it. We're going to see how the world reacts to Moses. How Pharaoh reacts to Moses shows us as an example. How's the world going to react to us? three God's going to reveal his nature and I think that's pretty cool too because we get to see in, in this book of Exodus God's actually revealing himself in ways he didn't reveal before so God's going to give Egypt chance after chance after chance to repent even though he doesn't have to because in the he's already seen the future tense he already knows Pharaoh's going to harden his heart he knows the end result he could just end this right now but God wants us to see a process and that's my point in going in here. The process is more important than the outcome. God could get the people out just like that, but the process of how God gets his people out is super relevant. And that's relevant for us too. And it's not hard to see the connection to our life. It's not what happens at the end of our life or the end outcome that matters. It's the process God brings us through. And those trials we have, those struggles we have, that's part of how God reveals himself to us, just like he's going to reveal himself to Egypt. So they note the ages. So mini genealogy, it's time to start the story. Um, verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, 
when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle of yourselves, they should, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Okay, this mirrors the interaction that God had with Moses back in Exodus 4, verses 1 through 3. Remember the stick, the rod, the snake? The snake was nasty enough to scare Moses, who was a desert-dwelling guy, so he knew it was nasty. God's already prepared Moses for this. Moses doesn't have to do anything beyond which he's already been prepared to do it. He's already been through the interaction. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did just so, just as the Lord commanded. Again, the writer's making the point here that them doing just what the Lord commanded, that is the point of this story. They're being obedient. They're doing it exactly as God said to do it. And the writer makes a point of that. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Wah! But Pharaoh kept his cool and called in the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, and they did in like manner with their enchantments. What? For every man threw down his rod, and they all became serpents, and Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. So this is the first clear wonder or clear miracle of this. Critics of the Bible would say, sticks don't turn into snakes. And that's impossible. And that's true in natural law. This is an impossibility. However, we still do this today, or I don't do it, but there are people in Egypt and around the Middle East that still do this. You can hypnotize snakes, and they can go stiff as a rock, and you can make them into stick-like objects and do something or another with them. And I didn't look all that up because Steph brought that one up. It is something where the magicians that knew how to do this could bring in a bunch of stiff, stiff snakes, throw them down, and then they break their paralysis and they turn into snakes. However, notice the end of this, verse 12, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, so their snake was bigger. And the Bible makes a point of this because the point is God is bigger than all their gods. But the magicians mirror it and then Pharaoh's heart grows hard. I got magicians that can do that trick too. I'm not impressed. He's the ultimate skeptic. He did not heed them as the Lord had said and they became uh, they became serpents. The biblical accepts that there's other powers in the world or the naturalistic explanation is the paralyzed snake thing and it's basically a magic trick that you can do. Or... God actually transforms the sticks to level the playing field so that it's not that easy for... So Pharaoh doesn't see a clear distinction here. Pharaoh would have to choose God over his gods. Um, So it could be that that's part of what happened here. Um, But it's commonly assumed that the magicians were doing sleight of hand just like magicians do today, right? And they were tricking it. However, they couldn't control which snakes won the battle royale on the floor. And if these are nasty, poisonous snakes... Snakes generally don't eat each other, so I think this would be quite a show, and they would have a snake fighting competition. (laughs) Either way, one of the ways the world deals with, I think, believers is that we get fruits of the Spirit that look a lot like things that the world can imitate, too. And we can have joy, and so can people at a rock concert. We can have peace, and so can people chilling on the beach in Cancun. There's nothing internal to the fruits of the Spirit for the believer that can't be imitated by the world. The difference is if it's real and if it's persistent. Like, does my joy go deep and is it abounding and does it last every day? Like, do I wake up with joy or do I have to put it on? And that's the difference, but it's a subtle difference. And those with a hard heart are like, man, I can do rock concerts and I can shout and yell and worship too. And I have a great spirit about it. Give me some more Led Zeppelin and a worship a Christian worship service doesn't look that impressive to them. They can imitate it just like the Pharaoh's magicians imitated the snakes. But I do like the visual gory message. If they made this into a movie, I'd want to see the scene where the god snake ate the other little snakes. Because it would have been little snakes attacking the big snake, right? It would have been a team versus a single and the single one. This would have been a really good thing. So, And the CG would be great on this. Also, This wouldn't have been a quick event. We read it in one or two sentences, but slow this down and think for a second. How long does it take for a snake to eat something? You ever watch the National Geographic video? It's long and it's gory and it takes a ton of time. And they only get full when they can't fit more down their gullet, right? So if this snake is eating all the other snakes, it had to be a huge snake, right? So, all right, anyways, verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. 
Um, so Pharaoh is has made his heart hard. Now it just is hard. Um, and God seems to be giving these opportunities for Pharaoh. Um, at this point, Pharaoh is repenting not out of a contrite heart. Um, oh, I'm sorry. When he does eventually let the people go, it's not because he's repenting or he's worshiping God. It's because he's scared for his own people and his own population. He's desperate. Um, and that's something when we see this hardening of heart. For me, that's a really tough issue because does God harden hearts or do people harden hearts? And it seems to be that Pharaoh hardens his own heart or that it is hard already. And it's only after it's too late that God hardens it the final time, right? And I think it's going to be a lot like that when God, Jesus does return. Everybody is going to bow and everyone will confess, right? That's what the Bible says. But at that point, it's kind of too late. God's already kind of made some decisions there. I don't think God should be mocked or tricked or fooled. And when it comes to our heart, he's not stupid. So I always get this question from my cynical friends, like, well, how does God know whose repenting is honest and whose is not honest? And the answer is because he's God. He knows our hearts and he knows Pharaoh's heart in the same kind of way. Um, verse 15. So go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. All right, this is when it starts to get going. And you shall stand by the river's bank and meet him. And the rod was turned into a serpent you shall take in your hand. All right, so this is kind of biblical stalking. So when the Pharaoh goes out in the morning and he's going down to the water, many commentators think he's just out taking a bath and he gets kind of private time by the river to take his bath. But more current archaeology and biblical commentators are coming up with another view, which is this is actually part of his routine as communing with the Nile gods. And then he'd go to the temple and commune with the air gods. So this was part of his job of talking to all the different gods. And when he's there, there's Moses and Aaron sitting on a rock, you know, kind of saying, hello, good morning. How are you? Um, I kind of imagine that there's these reeds down by the river where the little Moses baby carriage was floating. And those same reeds, Moses is hanging out in them. And then he's kind of like going, hey, Pharaoh, how you doing? And it's kind of, Pharaoh then would be without his makeup, without all of his adornments. Um, if he's taking a bath, he would be, at, kind of, this would be his personal private time. And there's Moses and Aaron. It's like they're walking in on the bathroom. And I just think that's a, just a great idea. Um, the Nile, remember, was a holy place or a holy location for the Pharaoh. And it was also dangerous because in the Nile is one of the greatest populations of crocodiles in the world. And they had little fishies that would bite. And they have all sorts of nasty things. The, the, the Nile, they actually have hippopotamuses. So the Nile is not an entirely safe place to hang out. So this would have been a stretch of beach that was probably cleared ahead of time for the Pharaoh. Um, and he was out there probably communing or pretending like he's talking to the gods or he's actually talking to demons. By God telling Moses to bring his stick that turned into a snake that just got done eating all the other snakes the day before, he's threatening Pharaoh. That would have been a terrifying stick to have in Moses' hand. And God's slowly, slowly introducing himself in that kind of way. But Pharaoh would likely remember that particular stick turning into a snake. That would stick in my memory. So when he's walking up on the edge of a beach, and now Pharaoh's all in the, his skivvies taking a bath, and there's stick snake coming up walking <laughs> with the beard man, that would not be a good situation for Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are coming up on him in a kind of a exposed period of time. So verse 16, and you shall say to him, hi, Pharaoh, how are you doing? No, should say, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. <clears throat> but indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus the Lord says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I like how the Lord's kind of given Pharaoh's words back to him. Now you're going to get to know me. I tried doing this in a nice way. And he didn't even ask to like, give all the like let the the hebrews go he basically wanted them to go into the wilderness remember to serve him for three days he wanted them to have a worship retreat and that's all they asked for at the beginning was a worship retreat but now god's going to pick a fight with this guy who thinks he's god behold i will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand and they shall be turned to blood and the fish that are in the river shall die and the river shall stink and the egyptians will loathe to drink the river of the water of the river I also imagine at this moment that Pharaoh's about waist deep in the water because I dream in PG-13. 
So I imagine he's about waist deep in the water. If that water turns to blood while he's in it, imagine that's getting all over his business. So it's kind of nasty. When he walks out of that river, it's going to be crusty and sticky. We know what blood feels like, right? He's going to have to scrape it out of the little hairs on his legs. No, Egyptians shave all the way, so wouldn't have to get it done. But still, it would not be... And if the river is turned to blood, there's nothing to wash off with. There's no water to wash the blood off. He would have had to have this caked on stuff all over the place, at least until people can get him some well water or something. So if this is his private bath time, that's nasty in that regard. If he's out talking to the Nile River gods, and that's what's going on with Pharaoh right now, notice that there's three pieces in verse 18. The fish shall die. That's one of their gods. The river shall stink. That's another one of their gods. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. He's actually going after the entire pantheon of the Egyptian gods. And I'll get into that when we get a little further on. I'll kind of walk you through that. And I like that the Bible doesn't mention one of them because they're not worth mentioning. He doesn't name them. We will because there's some archaeology and we know what they're called. And knowing who the Egyptian gods are shows the immediate connection to what's going on here. Right? So Moses does the river, Aaron does the rest. Um, verse 19, the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they might become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. So all the non-Nile water sources just got covered too. They all turned to blood also. That only left one source of water in the entire land, which we'll get to in a couple verses. So even the buckets of wood, so if you had gone out that morning and got a bucket of water from the well, brought it into your house, that's going to turn into blood too, right? So all of that sort of thing would have made a mess. It would have messed up your bucket. You probably wouldn't want to use it again. And this becomes the first of what are going to be 10 plagues in Egypt. For framing or for our mathematical people, they're going to be three groups of three plagues. And in each of the three plagues, Pharaoh's going to get a warning. Then he's not going to get a warning. And then he's going to get it taken by surprise. And that happens three different times. So there's a warning. God has mercy. And then he gives a plague without a warning. And it happens three times. And then in the last one, it's too late. Right? Not to say that that's a rule in our lives. Right? We don't get three warnings and then bam, we're done or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But God works in the same way. We often get warnings. We ask for mercy. We get mercy. And then sometimes think if we keep doing something or keep sinning in a way, sometimes consequences come without warning. And we see those same patterns in our lives today. At least I do. Maybe you all don't sin as much as I do. But we're going to see seven hardenings of the heart. Two of the plagues, the first two are going to be mimicked by the magicians. Some then are going to happen, and every single one of the plagues is going after one of the top Egyptian gods, all their idols that they have. Numerology, 10 is a fullness of quantity throughout the Hebrew Bible. There are 10 commandments, and there are 10 plagues. It is full and complete and done. So each of these would be an offer for Pharaoh to repent, and God's going to give Pharaoh those chances. Each plague is going to prove Jehovah has more power than the other gods. So the first one's going to be the blood of the Nile. And that has, there's three different gods primarily associated with that. The consequence of the Nile turning to blood and all the water is that the Egyptians are going to be thirsty. They're going to want something, right? They're going to have a thirst that they can't quench. The second one's going to be frogs coming out of the water. And I'm guessing this is review for everybody. That's happy Hecate and Hecht which are the gods of fertility, water, and renewal. The primary consequence of ugly frogs being in all your business is that you're just discomforted and it's gross, right? It's probably nasty and you don't want to throw a lot of stuff away the frogs were over. Those two both get duplicated by the magicians. But then the third one, the lice, the magicians can't mimic that because they become unclean and in their religion, they can't do things when they have lice all over them, right? And then there's going to be the fourth, fifth, and sixth plague, the next three. Uh, the Hebrews are not affected by the next three, and the Egyptians are. And those next three are the flies, the cattle dying, and the boils all over them, which cause 
destruction to the pharaoh's food source, destruction to their economy, and then it does, the boils make it so everyone in the country is unclean and they can't come before the gods. They actually have gods of flies, but we'll get to that next week. They have gods of the cattle. They have gods of love, gods of protection, gods of creation. Uh, with the boil, they actually have a god of skin. And that's part of why they shaved and kept their skin lotioned in Egypt. Um, but most people believe that that's directly uh, challenging Isis, which is one of their more famous gods, which has to do with healing and magic. And if Isis, uh, Isis can't heal their skin and heal their wounds, then she's proven to be powerless too. The final three plagues that we're going to see are hail fire, locust storm, and three days of darkness. All of which then go after other things. The the hail fire is going after the gods of the sky, right? And it destroys all their flax and barley. So any food that was left from the locusts and the whatever is going to be destroyed now. The locust storm then destroys all the food crops. Now we're talking about Egyptians really getting hurt. Their food's gone. Their economy's gone. This is destroying their country. And Pharaoh's still not looking out for his people more so than his own pride. Then you get three days of darkness, which is an attack on the god of the sun, which is Ra, which is one of the most powerful gods, right? Um, and, but there's all, that's also, if it's three days, that's also the god of the moon, the god of light, the god of the stars. So Horus, Toth, and Amon, all gods getting attacked with the, day, with the darkness. And the main effect there is that suddenly God's questioning their existence. Like, you don't have to exist. Um, and then the last plague, the tenth one, of course, is all the firstborns dying. It affects the Egyptians. It does not affect the Hebrews. Um, and it threatens death. So suddenly on that last one, the way that they're affected is people die on that one. So you can look at all these if you want. There's great websites to look this stuff up, and you can look it up. Um, but each of these plagues is really showing Pharaoh that God, Jehovah, is more mighty than any of the Egyptian gods. So again, one of the key points here is that with increasing detail, God is giving Moses instruction. First he says to walk. Now he's giving him things to say. That He has to say to Pharaoh word for word. And again, the process is the key. God's training Moses how to do as well. So the complex instructions are more than God asked Moses to do in the last chapter. So Moses is doing more and more for God, and the process is the key. Verse 20. Sorry, I went way too far into the plagues. I shouldn't apologize. I really like doing that stuff. Verse 20. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the Nile, and bam, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. Leaving the world of the Bible, let's go to Reader's Digest. <laughs> Reader's Digest, in response to this, says there are naturalistic explanations for each of these plagues. Here's what Reader's Digest says. The Ethiopian highlands are made of red clay, so it is possible that the torrential rains could have started a red mud flood that turned the Nile red and choked out the fish, which got infected then with anthrax. Possible. Happens. At just the perfect time, we're still going to give God credit if that's the case, because the timing would be perfect, because it happened right when the stick hit. Or Moses was upriver and saw the red clay coming down the river, and Moses just timed this out as a giant trick. Here's another one. This one's from Live Science in 2017. This is fairly current. Live science says, this is the other theory, the sudden, sudden appearance of red-hued waters in the Nile could have been caused by a red algae bloom, which appears when certain conditions enable a type of microscopic algae to reproduce in such great numbers that the waters they live in appear to be stained a bloody red color. This phenomenon is known as the red tide, and when it happens in oceans, but red algae are also well represented in freshwater ecosystems. That's good because you need freshwater ecosystems to make that happen in the Nile. And these algae blooms can certainly be harmful to wildlife, so it could kill the fish, as the algae contain a toxin that can accumulate in shellfish and poison the animals that feed on them, Live Science 2017. So there are naturalistic explanations for the first plague. There's only a couple problems with that. And this is where I... 
I think growing up and having been a scientist, I always enjoyed these explanations because it's almost like they made the Bible okay for me to believe. But there's five major problems with both of those explanations. One is the timing. In verse 20, it said he lifted the rod and he struck the waters and it happened and it happened in front of all of his servants. So the Bible's claiming that it happened on a moment, not a tide that comes in. And how does the tide get into the buckets? I'm sorry, I'm moving on to the next one. So number two, there were witnesses in verse 20 that saw it happen in front of the servants. And so it's not algae or clay dye, it's blood. The third major problem is you're assuming that an entire population of people doesn't know the difference between red algae water and blood. Most human beings know what blood is because we've all scraped our knee when we're kids or even when we're adults. <laughs> and we know what blood feels like. We know its stickiness. We know its viscosity, right? We know what blood is. So you're assuming these ancient people didn't even know what blood was, but they knew how to build pyramids, right? You're assuming absolute idiocy on the author, which is tough for me to accept. Number four, the Nile's not just a, it wasn't just the Nile River. The claim of the Bible is that it was the ponds, it was the pools, it was the streams that went into it, and it was the buckets of wood and the, the, the cups of stone. Like it was in people's houses that they started to pour a drink and they realized it was blood. So the Bible's actually making a claim that is fully miraculous. Number five, they have an option to work for survival. In verse 24, we're going to see that they dug all around the river and could still get water to drink, but they had to work for their water. Well, that's an interesting thing that they're recording in the Bible that happened. That meant armies of people are out digging wells the irony of that and the, the harmony of that is beautiful. Think of Genesis chapter 24. What did Isaac spend his whole life doing because the bad guys kept taking all his wells? He had to keep digging wells. The Hebrews have dug their wells. The Egyptians have not. They've gotten to live off this Nile for their whole existence, and God's making them do some digging for water. He's making them work. Um, so that option for working uh, for survival... If it was just a red algae broom, you just boil the algae and drink the water that you steamed off, right? You could still turn it into water just by heating it up, boiling it, and taking the steam residue off. But they didn't do that. They dug wells. So that's the other kind of piece. So there are naturalistic claims, but there's really no room in this biblical account for a naturalistic explanation because of those five major points. You either have to believe the Bible's telling you the truth, that God did a miracle here, or you have to reject that these people, you, you have to take some massive leaps of faith. And for me, the biggest one is, you have to assume they didn't know what blood was. And I just can't plausibly believe that. Um, so that naturalistic explanation also requires a lot of faith. Um, another way I've seen this is that the writer of Exodus, Moses, is exaggerating the events in their favor. Um, but that's not textually consistent with anything we've seen in Genesis or Exodus so far. Um, this is not a Norse myth that we're reading. They've pointed out Moses's faults and Isaac's faults and Jacob's faults and Abraham's faults and Joseph's faults. They don't exaggerate in their own favor and they haven't so far in either of these books that we've read. The writer is then making, making sure that we can understand that what happened because it's what actually happened. So... The other idea is that this is all one giant metaphor. However, this is nothing intertextually. There's no place where the writer is claiming to make metaphor here. The writer's trying to tell us history. So you have to assume that that writer's cause is there unless you have re reason to not believe that it's the case. So the Bible's already established in Genesis 1-1 that God created. If God created, God can create. So according to the Bible's own rules, there's really not a huge issue here with the God can do that, which is why we don't see big explanations of the plagues in the Bible, is that they're already assuming you've accepted Genesis 1-1, that God is, that God created all the things, and in the beginning there was God, and he did these things. He made the evidence of the earth. So there's a, in that sense, there's not a big claim here, and this isn't a huge major point of faith for most believers, because we've already believed that there's a God. And if there is a God that created the natural world, then that, that God can change the natural world. This is also one of the, the, the symmetry of this goes in other, there's like people read into these and there's, I'm just picking some of the cool points. 
One is the very first miracle we see in the New Testament is that the water gets changed to wine. And it's one of the major miracles we see God doing on earth to intervene in a personal way with human beings as he turns water into blood. So we see some symmetry between the Old and New Testament. I'm trying to understand my notes. I was about to say, could you repeat that? So in the New Testament, the first miracle we see is that Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding. And we've seen God create the world and we've seen God flood the world and we've seen God act in a way that's pretty amazing for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph. But this is kind of this first kind of major world event that we see in Exodus is the water getting turned into blood. Right? Saw so the snakes kind of flipping too, but this is just one of those things that we see that kind of being there. So the naturalistic rationales for me is one of those things that we can try to appeal to non-believers by saying, well, maybe there's naturalistic explanations for these. But I get a feeling that you have to deny a lot in the Bible to do that. And it pretty much makes you lukewarm. Um, it doesn't work with Pharaoh because these things get replicated by his magicians and it doesn't change his heart. So to think that we can change people's hearts by coming up with naturalistic explanations of a miracle making God um, is really difficult to do and it doesn't necessarily ever convert people. All it does is weakens the message of the Bible. It's entirely reasonable and logical that a creator God can create blood out of water. It's not a leap if you believe there is a God. Zechariah 7.12 says they made their hearts as hard as stone so they could not hear the instructions and the messages of the Lord of heaven's armies that had sent them by his spirit through earlier prophets. It doesn't work when we compromise these things. It doesn't work when Jesus pulls the miracle off in front of people's faces. Mark 6.52 says, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. They saw loaves and fishes just multiply in front of their eyes and they still didn't understand it. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Jesus doesn't waste his time trying to convince people that are hard-hearted and Moses doesn't do that with Pharaoh either. In Luke 22:67, they said to, they come up to Jesus and they say, "Tell us, are you the Messiah?" and but he replied, Jesus replied, "If I tell you, you won't believe me." I can do miracles in front of people's eyes and they'll still be skeptical. Pharaoh can still be skeptical even when he's seeing the miraculous happen right in front of him. And it is amazing. You can see a drug addict turn their life around. You can see people get healed. You can see people do amazing things and the skeptical will still be skeptical. It won't convince them and it won't compel them. At the end of the day, maybe this is good because you still have a choice. You have to choose if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God, just like Pharaoh had to choose, just like Moses had to choose. It's not about plausibility or reason. It's about the choice. Do you bow to God or don't you bow to God? And there's no way around that choice. Nothing's gonna convince your mind of things that your heart can't believe from the beginning. Not that our mind isn't important. Um, early educational systems and universities primarily founded so that people could learn to read the word of God, usually included rhetoric and logic classes. As societies move further and further away from that pursuit of truth, one of the first things they do in educational curriculum is they remove the rhetoric and the logic classes, and they take them out of the education system. Because logic and reason actually help us to understand and believe the Bible, not the opposite. And I always thought that was interesting because people will say, well, Christianity, it's not reasonable. And it's like, what is your definition of reason? It's entirely reasonable and it's entirely plausible. Show me one lapse of logic that the Bible has. Well, water got turned into blood. No, it's not a lapse in logic. A creator God can do that. That's reasonable. It's not outside of our known of reason. Anyways, I'm going off on that a little bit too much. But this is one of those tough areas where people have trouble with miracles. And we have to decide how we want to deal with that. And we get a great example from Moses and Pharaoh. Moses just keeps doing his thing. Verse 22, Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and neither was his heart moved by this. So he's seeing the Nile River turn into blood, and his heart's not moved by it. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, 
because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. So a couple key points here. One is the magicians of Egypt did the same thing. Wait a second. If all the water just got turned into blood, why are they mimicking that? Wouldn't they want to turn the blood back to water? So ultimately, even though they said, well, we can do this same sleight of hand trick, they didn't turn the river back to water. So they didn't really have power over this one like they do with the snakes. Also, aren't they wasting perfectly good water if they're mimicking this trick? Like how cruel. If you have a bucket of fresh water that somebody just dug a well to go get, why would you make more blood? Why in the world would you do that? So the magicians can't reverse the effects. They just add to the problem and waste water in the process. Just thought that was an interesting point. Um, and I also like that the Egyptians are out digging wells. So part of the whole issue is Pharaoh liked his slave for workforce of Hebrews. And now the slave workforce of Hebrews is kind of watching the Egyptians go digging for water. Seven days go by. That's a lot of time to repent. That's a lot of time for Pharaoh to to have an opportunity to give the Hebrews what they want. Um, God always gives people a period of time before the coming judgment. So to say, oh, I don't believe in a God that's super cruel and does all these mean things to the Egyptians. These Egyptians had a lot of chances here to turn around, but they're not turning around. So Pharaoh's reason for rejecting this was he didn't know the Lord, Exodus 5, 2. Um, he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. But now Pharaoh knows God. Now suddenly there's a God with enough power that Pharaoh can't understand it. Um, and his priests can't really turn it back. So the Pharaoh turned, the word there is panah. It means to look away or turn your back on something. He just went into his bedroom, covered his ears, hid his head under a pillow and just went, nah, 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 I can't hear any of this. He really just turned away from the whole situation. So he's not acting like a god anymore. He's acting like a human. Um, so Panah is an interesting, very human word that's getting ascribed to this guy who thought he was so amazing. Um, can, is it possible for people to see the power of God and actually turn away from it? Heck yeah, it's totally worth it. That's possible. It happens all the time. Matthew 7, 6 says, don't waste what is holy on, uh, what on, holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls and then they'll turn and attack you. So that's exactly what Pharaoh's going to do. They're try God's trying to show his power to Pharaoh, but it doesn't work with Pharaoh and it's not going to work in Matthew 6, 7, 6, and it's not going to work today. Sometimes those situations where we see the power of God, they're not going to be understood and they're things to edify our heart, but they're not necessarily converting people. So in the last chapter, Pharaoh hardened his heart around the Sabbath, around rest, about them worshiping their God, saying he didn't know God. Now God's introducing himself and the Egyptians are having to do work. False gods allow us to do what we please by not thinking about our service to the Lord. We worship what we love and we serve what we fear. And as we get to the end of this chapter, I thought this is really about worship. And the Pharaoh worships himself and he worships these idols and he's trying to make this choice between what he knows and what he understands and what he worships and what God's calling him to do, which is to obey. God's calling Pharaoh to obey his voice. When we worship what we love, it's almost the same as what we fear. And, and our hearts can only be as big as those things that we really fear. And God calls us to fear him and not fear things of this world. This is an interesting kind of thing. You always know what people worship by what they spend their time and what they spend their money on. If you spend your time and money on God, you're worshiping God. But if you spend your time and money on other things, those can easily be the things that you worship. And those things you worship can be the same thing that traps you. For instance, there are people that love beauty and they want to be beautiful, where that becomes a trap where then they fear getting old. They fear the loss of that thing they worship. You can love or worship money, but then you fear slowing down, taking a break, resting, because you might not make that money you want to make. You can love power, you can worship that kind of power, but then you fear anyone in the around you that has more skill or talent than you do in an area. And you fear those people and you attack them. You can love controlling things, but then you fear change and you fear adventure, right? Because you've got to control everything. You can love or worship other people, but then you're just going to fear being rejected or being let down by those people. And it always happens. 
those things you worship are also the things you fear. It's the same, it's two sides of the same coin. You can love pop culture, the best music, the newest movies, but then you fear missing out or not staying caught up on things. And it becomes a jail cell where you're just frantically trying to keep up on all the pop culture stuff or the news for my uh, people I know in my life. Like they just follow the news and they can't miss any news and it becomes a prison. And suddenly you're in this jail cell where you're constantly looking in a mirror. You're constantly looking at other people. You're constantly looking about where you're going to get your next dollar from or where you're going to get your next adventure from. And you become entrapped by those things that you worship and you fear. That's the problem with idol worship. And it's the problem that God sees. He didn't create us to do that. We're supposed to love God and worship God. And then we fear not having God. And that's not a trap. Unlike everything else in the world, that doesn't become the end. God's above the world. So when you fear God, there's no fear that has anything to do with this world. That equals freedom. So fearing God is actually the same as loving God, and it becomes our freedom because there's nothing in this world that can trap us. You can take away my good looks. You can add a belly on me. You can take away people that get mad at me. You can take away money. You can take away everything, but if I still have God, I'm free. I can lose all the things the world has to offer. So any love for idols, anything love for anything on this earth that's human created, it's a misplaced love. And those fears are totally legitimate because you can lose them. Any love for God is totally legitimate. And any fear then is misplaced. And that's the decision that Pharaoh has to make. He has to choose God or he has to choose himself and his idols. And all of Egypt's going to have an opportunity to make this choice. So God's going to go down to the river and meet with Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. And he's given this country a chance, right? They've done a kindness. They've housed the Hebrews for 400 years. They get an opportunity here to get through things. So God's going to, over the next few chapters, going to make a definitive point about different kinds of idols, different kinds of things we worship. I think each of these plagues represents some of those things I just mentioned, that each of these plagues is something in our life that we shouldn't be so terrified of, we shouldn't be so scared of, because if we're scared of it, we kind of worship it too. So, and there's that thing we want to keep, and losing it becomes the thing. So there's nothing on this earth that's going to compare to God, starting with bath time in the morning by the Nile not as important and and it's funny because Pharaoh at any point could have just said yeah you can have your three day holiday to go worship Jehovah out in the wilderness can I get back to my bath now and God's going to say no you're not going to get back to your bath because I'm calling you to do something so part of fearing God for us I think if we're putting ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes we should be loving God but the flip side of that coin is we should fear not doing God's will in our life too because I don't want to be caught in a bathtub that turns to blood, metaphorically speaking, when I'm supposed to be doing something God's called me to do. I would rather just have my bath and obey God and move forward to that way. So anyways, I could jump into eight, but the plagues get bigger and more elaborate and more fun. And I'll try to do a couple of them a time here over the next couple weeks. Um, but I did want to take the time with those Egyptian gods and just get through them. If you know anything about the pantheon of Egyptian gods, um, it's amazing that we learn those in elementary school and middle school. We learn the Greek gods, the Norse gods, the Roman gods, the Egyptian gods, but we can't talk about Jehovah. So to think that America is escaping this idea right now that we're not honoring Jehovah is foolish because these gods weren't just fifth grade elementary school kind of happy-go-lucky things to God. They were idols. They were evil. They were things that God had to show as false. So <clears throat> I think what's coming up as we go through this, I think you could ascribe or look at these kinds of gods, but they mean something to these Egyptians. They're not just kitty play toy things. They're not cartoons. <clears throat> so when we look at these gods, I'm going to try to get into Egyptian religious practices a little bit which are not pg-13 some of them are horrible and they're ugly and i think it's important to understand what god is fighting against by looking at how ugly that thing is that he's coming up against and the way in which he shows his power over those gods 
is entirely merciful and graceful and good um, because those gods were not kind to the Egyptian people. They were dominating, enslaving gods, and they were nasty and mean. And so we'll look at some of those things next week too. Uh, we won't dwell too long on them, but anytime you have a god with a frog head, something gross is about to happen. So, and Egyptians had a funny way of anytime they made up a god, they just threw a new animal head on the top of it. Um, and those animal heads had meaning and symbolism to the Egyptians. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we love you and we want to serve you. That's why we're here. That's why you've called us, Lord. It's no accident that each person in this room is here, Lord, to learn a little bit more about what you have to say through your word. Lord, help me to get out of the way of that. Um, help nothing I say to be taken for granted. I just pray that each man and woman in this room looks things up for themselves and finds uh, these things on their own, Lord, that they become students of your word because we love you, we worship you, and Lord, we are we have a holy fear of you, Lord. We don't want to miss out on what you've got in our life, the blessings you've got for our um, families and for our friends, Lord. We don't want them to miss out on what you've got for them either, Lord. So we want to lift you up. We want to worship you. We want to speak your name with boldness, with clarity, with truth. Uh, we want no doubt in our head, Lord. We just want you to wash that away through the renewing force of your word, Lord, that we don't apologize for, we don't compromise for your word. Uh, we don't try to come up with naturalistic explanations when the Bible's not making a naturalistic claim, um, that we take your word for what it says. And Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do that with confidence, Lord, because we know your power in our life and in our hearts. And it makes it a lot easier to accept miracles, Lord, when we feel miracles in our own lives. Um, Lord, I just pray for each of us, Lord, as we deal with idols. We live in a society and a culture that worships everything but you. Um, and Lord, all those old, ugly idols pop back up in those kinds of cultures, Lord, uh, where the pursuit of everything is right in front of us and the pursuit of you is hidden away. Um, Lord, we deny that. We reject it. We rebel against it. We pursue you above everything else this world has to offer. But Lord, we can't do that on our own strength. We need you. Give us that strength. Give us that power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.